0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Solving the Puzzle with Dr. Datis Karazian informing you about evidence-based strategies for autoimmune disease, brain health issues, Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, gut health problems, and many other chronic health conditions. If you enjoy this podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at drknews.com.
1: Okay, hi, everyone. I got some uh, answers for questions that were submitted specific to Hashimoto's. So let's go through these list of questions. So first one, when T4 binds to thyroglobulin, are you saying that then it can't go to other receptors in the body? It only places free T4 goes in the thyroid receptors? Kindly clarify. Well, thank you for saying kindly clarify. That's a very kind question. So let me explain a few things. And, and this may be from the course that someone is going through. I have a course called Hashimoto Solving the Puzzle where we talk about uh, all the different lifestyle dietary factors and research that we know impacts Hashimoto's and teach people how to go through steps to find out um, a strategy to help with their um, approaches to supporting their thyroid function and, and modulating the expression of their Hashimoto's. So, the question is really related to how thyroid hormones work. So, when thyroid hormones are made by the thyroid gland, they're actually not able to bind to any receptors. And remember, for any hormone to have an effect, it has to be bound to receptor. So, the endocrine gland makes hormones, and then throughout the rest of the body, throughout all our tissues in the body, we have receptors for these different hormones. And in some tissues we have different receptors for different hormones. Now every single tissue in the body has receptors for thyroid hormones. So thyroid hormones impact every cell, every tissue. Um, they control the metabolic rate of cells. So every single tissue in the body has receptor sites for thyroid hormones. Some tissues in the body have receptors for receptor sites for testosterone, some do not. Some have receptor sites for estrogen, some do not. But every single cell in the tissue in the body has receptor sites for thyroid hormones. Now when your thyroid gland actually makes thyroid hormones they can't bind to those receptors because when the thyroid gland makes hormones, it's actually the hormone, the thyroid hormone, but it's bound to a protein. And that protein uh, is called thyroid binding globulin. And thyroid binding globulin uh, prevents that hormone from getting into the receptor. So why does that happen? Well, the reason that happens is because your thyroid hormones have to s- circulate all throughout your body. And, and if they didn't have this thyroid binding globulin protein attached to it, then all you would have is thyroid hormones released from the thyroid gland and you have a, would have a local effect. And then these hormones wouldn't be able to get to different tissues uh, in in your body. So what happens is there's a period where thyroid hormones have this thyroid binding globulin t- cleaved off. It just it gets taken off. And at that point, that thyroid hormone becomes a free hormone. So you may have heard the word like free T3 or free T4. So free T3 and T4 are hormones that don't have this protein attached to it. So think of thyroid binding globulin as like a transport protein. Your thyroid gland makes hormones but all with this transfer protein on it so it can get into circulation and get throughout to your body. And then there's a signal and a mechanism that takes place once it gets to the target site that then cleaves off this thyroid-binding globulin protein, and then the thyroid hormone becomes free. And once it becomes free of this protein, it can actually bind to the receptor sites and have a tissue effect. So this is an important mechanism of thyroid hormone function. Now, one of the most common things that, by the way, throws this off is birth control pills. Many women go on birth control pills like... Uh, various sources, or some women go on hormone replacement therapy therapy, like Premarin, and what will happen with them is estrogens increase this thyroid binding globulin activity to the point where their thyroid binding globulin levels become extremely elevated, and they don't uncleave their hormone, so their free T3 and T4 levels go down. So they start developing weight gain and depression, and the hair starts falling out, they have mood swings, directly related to when they went on uh, these estrogen sources and it doesn't happen to every person but it does happen to some and the way you could determine if this is happening is you you get your thyroid binding globin levels measured and your free t3 and t4 levels and if your thyroid binding globin levels are elevated and your free t3 and t4 levels are low uh, then that mechanism may be occurring so i th- hope that answers your question okay next question for people like me with very high TPO antibodies, greater than 1200, I have tried everything, including the changes you recommended, and my numbers are still high. Are there any further recommendations you have to bring down TPO antibodies? Okay, I heard of LDN as an option. So first, a couple things: um, antibodies are 1200. They're 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 elevated, but you just need to know that the antibody level itself doesn't mean you're like in really, really worse shape. You could have someone who has an antibody instead of have 1,200 of antibody elevation of 80, and they could have much more severe uh, condition than you have because the antibodies, again, don't destroy anything. Uh, What happens is the antibodies are released, they bind to thyroid tissue, but it's actually T cells that destroy them. So just because your antibody is 1200 doesn't mean like you're in serious bad shape. It may look that way, but it's not clinically uh, interpreted that way or clinically applicable that way. So what you want to understand is that if if your antibodies are 1200, it it is what it is. And And it may never go down. If you feel better and function better, that's all that matters because the autoimmune response isn't just the antibody level. So first of all, be aware of that. Now, you know, you see I've tried everything. So this is the thing I've tried. Everything doesn't necessarily always mean you've tried everything. It means you may think you've tried everything. (laughs) There's time where you need to work with a skilled healthcare professional. So, you know, I understand the importance of uh, trying to figure things on your own and we, we are at a need for that, because we don't have enough competent healthcare professionals out there. And there are times you just have to do whatever you know how to do to support your own health. But there are times you got to seek out that expert and see what you may be missing. So I can tell you with the majority of people I've worked with over the years, they come in saying, I've done everything. And then literally within the first 20 minutes, you realize they really haven't done much. They just think they've tried everything. So just just some thought on on uh, person asking this question here. So be aware of that. So there's lots of things you can do. And LDN, which you asked for, so you ask, are there any further recommendations? Can you bring down TPO with LDN? So LDN is low-dose naltrexone. It's a medication that's prescribed. And low-dose naltrexone is one of these medications that has an impact on autoimmunity to some degree. It doesn't cure it. It doesn't reverse it. But low-dose naltrexone, uh, activates regulatory T-cells. And regulatory T-cells have a modulating effect in autoimmunity. And I can tell you with uh, over the years, what I've seen with patients with autoimmunity that do LDN therapy is that some feel better. And most feel better for a short period of time and don't. And there's also a portion of people that don't notice any difference with LDN. So it's certainly something... You know, anyone with autoimmunity should consider, but you definitely don't want to think of it as like uh, like the missing factor, the key thing that changes everything. That doesn't happen with, with almost every everyone that goes on it. But for some people, they notice that it has some anti-inflammatory effects and some benefits for it. Now, I personally have found that if it does work for a person, if they start taking it all the time, it just loses its loses effect over time. So they kind of go back to the same symptoms they were having, And it's nice to have something like in your pocket if you really get in trouble. Like if you have autoimmune and you have a really bad flare-up and you really need to calm things down and you did respond well to LDN, maybe it's a good time to then consider it. But once you start taking every day, all the time, just like anything that modulates the immune system, it does lose efficacy. So be aware of that. Okay, next question. Can you please discuss the issues regarding having a depressed TSH below the functional range? Does this need to be fixed by taking a smaller dose of thyroid hormones? And the second part of the question, what if the patient feels better than they have ever felt before since the Hashi's diagnosis and t 3s in the functional range? Okay. So let's talk about TSH levels first. So thyroid stimulating hormone levels are going to go up when The thyroid gland isn't working and the pituitary is trying to stimulate it, hence the name thyroid stimulating hormone. And there are some people that actually develop pituitary issues and not really thyroid issues. So what happens is their pituitary gland doesn't work well and they don't release TSH. So their TSH levels are very low. And since their thyroid gland isn't being stimulated to produce hormones by thyroid-stimulating hormone for the pituitary, they end up with every single thyroid symptom, and their TSH levels are low. So they actually have secondary hypothyroidism, primary hypopituitarism. And this isn't very common, but it does happen here and there. The most common cause of this is a significant inflammatory response. Like some of these patterns happen after acute traumas, acute surgeries. Uh, Those are factors there. Significant infections can sometimes cause that pituitary suppression. And then there are some medications that can also suppress the pituitary. Um, Some of the medications like lithium, bipolar disorders, they can really have some effects on that pathway. So if you see low TSH, um, you also have to see that their actual T4 levels are low. So if the T4 levels are also low and the TSH is low, that's when you have a pituitary issue. Now, if the TSH levels are normal, but the T- TSH levels are low, the T4 levels are normal, then that doesn't mean the thyroid gland's not working. It just means it's more efficient and can work with less levels. So that's that's the key thing about TSH. If the TSH is low, if it's a pituitary issue, then the T4 levels will also be low, and then look for an inflammation, infections, medications that could be doing that. If the TSH is just low and you feel great, then that might be what your levels are, and that might be what you're functioning well and doing okay with. So, um, and also remember that if your T, if you go on thyroid medication, your TSH is going to be very low. Because the thyroid medication, thyroid hormones you're taking, are going to have a suppressing effects on your pituitary release. Since your pituitary doesn't need to release any more stimulating hormone because you're taking it, TSH levels will be low. Next question, please address, and they put in bold letters, <laughs> hyperthyroidism with Hashimoto's and even with Graves' disease, and and they put in bold again. Please talk about hyperthyroidism, Hashimoto's. Also swinging back and forth between hypo and hyperthyroid. Okay, <laughs> so most people that develop Hashimoto's have a slow destruction of the thyroid gland over time, and as these thyroid cells get destroyed slowly over time, they eventually don't make enough of uh, they, they don't make enough thyroid hormones because these follicular cells are destroyed, and they then get diagnosed hypothyroid. It's a slow destructive process over time leading to hypothyroidism. There are some people that have Hashimoto's that have not a slow destruction, but a very, very aggressive autoimmune attack against their thyroid gland. And that can then cause Hashimoto's hyperthyroidism, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, hyperthyroid activity, overactive response. And the reason that's happening is because their immune autoimmune response destroying the thyroid gland tissue isn't subtle and slow. It's very aggressive and very abrupt. And there's such severe destruction that thyroid hormones are getting released into the bloodstream at really, really high levels. That's what's causing them to have too much thyroid hormones in the bloodstream and then become hyperthyroid. So Hashimoto's can cause either hypothyroidism or hyper. Typically, it causes hypothyroidism because it's a slow destruction over time. For some individuals, just much, much smaller group, they can have a hyperthyroid response where they get anxiety, nervousness, can't sleep, feel like their heart's going to pump out of their chest. They go to the emergency room thinking they have an anxiety attack or something's wrong. They check their panels. They see that their thyroid hormones, T3 and T4, are really, really elevated. And they go, well, you're hyperthyroid. And at that point, if someone's hyperthyroid, that... In addition to being a very aggressive Hashimoto's response, it can also be another autoimmune disease from the thyroid called Graves' disease. And the main difference between Graves' disease and Hashimoto's is that Graves' disease has another autoimmune target site, which is called TSH receptor uh, antibodies. And what happens in, in Graves' disease is not only does the autoimmune response destroy the thyroid gland, but the antibodies themselves bind to Thyroid stimulating pathways on the thyroid gland. So in, in addition to getting the thyroid gland destroyed by the autoimmune response, the antibodies in Graves called TSH receptor antibodies, they activate the thyroid gland to produce more thyroid hormones, and then you get in these really aggressive thyroid storm patterns. So that's how hyperthyroidism presents. And in a basic clinical model, if someone ends up like a, in the emergency room with really overactive symptoms or visits a doctor with really hyperactive type symptoms and anxiety insomnia and they see that their t3 and t4 levels are run are elevated they can't clearly distinguish if it's Hashimoto's that's doing it or Graves so they'll run three antibodies they'll run tpo antibodies thyroglobulin antibodies and tsh receptor antibodies and if the tsh receptor antibodies are positive there's an 80 percent probability that it's Graves' disease, which is actually a much more aggressive autoimmune disease for the thyroid than Hashimoto's. And if the TSH receptor antibodies are negative, but the TPO and theraglobin are elevated, then that's just Hashimoto's. So I hope that answered your question. Okay, next one. I recently learned that chronic sinus infections might be from Hashimoto's. What to do in that case? Antibiotics not help long-term, no mold-related bacteria, more cones, no allergies. Well, This is, again, you got to be careful blaming everything that may happen on Hashimoto's or hypothyroidism. So if you have chronic sinus infections, you really, first of all, it's not a specific symptom of Hashimoto's. But if you have Hashimoto's and your immune system is really compromised or weak, that may be a factor. So you want to look at your blood test, if you had any recent blood tests, and look at your total white blood cell count and see if your total white blood cell count is below the laboratory range or on the low end of the reference range. And if that's the case, you know you may be prone to these chronic sinus infections because the autoimmunity itself from Hashimoto's is wearing out your immune system. And then if you can do any kind of strategies that can calm down your autoimmune expression, whether it's dietary or lifestyle, um, that can help put you in remission, then you can see your white blood cells go up in in, in normal scenarios, and that could be what you need to be able to have. A healthy enough immunity to deal with your chronic sinus issues other times there are um, not issues with the white blood cells but there's a marker called secretary iga and secretary iga is the immunoglobulins found in your nasal cavity and when people have Hashimoto's or people have immune compromise issues and there are some people that just don't make enough secretary iga cells genetically they don't have a, Enough healthy immunity in their chronic sinus, in, in their mucosal tissues like their nasal cavity. And there are some people that are under-secretors, they just genetically don't make much SIGA and they're always going to be prone to chronic sinus infections, but it's unrelated to Hashimoto's. There are some people that have ongoing, ongoing uh, exposures to environmental triggers that keep promoting their chronic ciruses. And there's people that have staph, strep resistant bacteria that causes chronic sinus issues that are unrelated to just the immune system function, but are their own independent factors. So, like your question is what to do? I, I go, I don't know. I can't tell you just from a Q and A what to do. That's you're gonna need to find someone to help you figure those things out. But it's not directly Hashimoto's thing. It's just if you have Hashimoto's, your immune system could be compromised. But it may not even be to Hashimoto's immune compromise. So. It's not clear to to suggest anything because we don't know what the mechanism is. Next question. Can you explain how Hashimoto's can impact iron ferritin levels? Okay. I have learned about the importance of adequate ferritin levels to support thyroid function, but struggle to raise my ferritin levels higher than 20 despite eating red meat, bone broth, leafy greens, and other iron-rich foods. Is there a reason for low ferritin that I can address? Yeah. The reason is your levels aren't low. (laughs) <laughs> so you know the lab range for ferritin is like five to four hundred so what, what what happens with when with people and even with practitioners that don't understand how to read labs and understand how ferritin works is they see ferritin range between five to four hundred and they see a level of 20 and they go you're low in ferritin and then they keep trying to give them iron and foods that are really high in iron to try to raise their levels. And guess what, it doesn't raise it because there's no need for it. So ferritin is a storage form of iron. And if your storage levels, 20 could be all you may need for stored iron, because you have iron in other cells and other tissues and red blood cells all throughout your body. So don't ever look at low ferritin as a need for iron. It's a terrible marker for iron. The only time you should start thinking that you may need iron supplementations is your total iron binding capacity. Even serum iron is not the best level. Serum iron, where you get a blood test to look at your iron levels, serum iron levels are a good marker for iron overload, but not for necessarily early stage iron deficiency. So the best marker to look at for iron deficiency is a marker called total iron binding capacity, T-I-B-C. You could ask your doctor to order that for you and then see what those levels are so so be aware of that so that's the key thing with with uh your question here so you you're whoever you're working with or whatever's happening here is the practitioner you're working with is assuming your iron your ferritin level of 20 is sign of deficiency and they are putting you in a protocol to try to get iron levels up i would say you may want to go and work with someone else because that, that clearly is an issue with basic lab interpretation there okay next question You mentioned that what defines the severity of disease is how aggressive the T-cells are and not just the antibody count. Yes, we've said that many times in different uh, courses in education. The lab shows that my T-suppressor cell count is low, CD3, and CD56 natural killer cells is elevated and thyroid antibodies are normal. What does that mean for my Hashimoto's? Well, it's not really clear. So just because you have some T cells or natural killer cells that are slightly up and you see T3 cells are low, it's just your expression of the Hashimoto's response. So you always want to look at your symptoms in combination with your lab test and then, and then monitor them over time. So if your antibody levels are normal, you may not even have Hashimoto's, but let's assume you do and, and your antibodies are in remission. If you're T-cell natural killer activity is high, then you're having significant T-cell responses. So in a very simple model is you have antibodies. So T-cells are not going to just destroy your thyroid gland by themselves. The only way T-cells will destroy your thyroid gland is if your immune system, your B-cells, make antibodies that then attach to those cells, and then your T-cells will, will go ahead and destroy them. So if your antibody count is conned down, even though your natural killer cells may be high, it probably means you, your Hashimoto's is not your thyroid gland is not going to be very vulnerable to attack. Now, if your natural killer cells are really high and your antibodies are high, I mean that's a, a, an indication that you have a pretty significant and active immune response that's probably destroying those tissues. So it sounds like you're doing you're doing good. Now I would also point out that antibody levels do fluctuate, so it may seem normal now. You might check it three days later or a week later and could be off the charts so that's the other key thing you have to understand about antibodies and lab work they fluctuate all the time they fluctuate daily so you know um, you gotta you, you can't just rely on lab tests because they're a snapshot of fluctuations of immune function and uh, um, y- you want to really look at your overall sense of well-being and your other symptoms if you have Hashimoto's and not just those lab tests okay next question my question is about polyendocrine dysfunction. So polyendocrine meaning, poly meaning many endocrine, so many, many endocrine gland dysfunctions. Can you please comment on this when multiple glands are low functioning as it relates to Hashimoto's? So again, it's, it comes down to like, what's your definition of multiple glands being low? Does it mean you have like adrenal dysfunction be diagnosed based on like adrenal salivary test? Or do you actually have like Addison's disease where you have to be on you know, adrenal hormone replacement. Uh, you know, so if you have actual multiple polyendocrine autoimmune destruction, then you have a systemic autoimmune disease, and those are extremely serious. And uh, you, you may need more than diet and lifestyle to help calm down the expression of that. And this is really where the field of biologics and immune modulating therapies may be important so you don't have. Complete organ destruction and failure, or to s- slow that down. Now, if it's just like, well, you know, my, you know, I, my symptoms are just low thyroid, low adrenal, low pancreas, and they're, you know, being diagnosed kind of like subtly or clinically by, like, you just being low in nutrients or something. Then I would just not worry about that. <laughs> so, uh, outside of that, it's hard to answer your question without knowing more because I don't know how you're defining. Multiple glands are low. Okay. One of the things you mentioned in the nutraceutical part was myo-inositol. You don't offer it in the store. How do we choose a good product? You get myo-inositol anywhere. So myo-inositol is basically a micronutrient, and uh, myo-inositol is basically a derivative. uh, It's it's in the B vitamin family. And myo-inositol has been shown in a few studies and even some human clinical trials to help dampen thyroid inflammation. So, um, it's not a supplement that's difficult to find anywhere. You can find it, uh, on Amazon, any health food store online, and, uh, it's not very expensive. So it's a nutrient we talk about in Hashimoto's on the Puzzle, where there's some, some good research behind it. And in the Hashimoto's on the Puzzle course that I put together, we do, I do a literature review of all the main supplements that have been published. So you can actually see what the research is for, for different things that work for different mechanisms. Uh, if you want to learn more about that, please go to drknews, drknews.com. Okay, next question. For the first eight years of my diagnosed Hashimoto's, I stopped consuming iodine salt. I only received my iodine via food. But for the last couple of years, my serum iodine levels have been low. Should I increase consumption, I was hoping raising my iodine level would stop my hair from falling out. Okay, you got to be very careful if Hashimoto's jumping from one protocol just because you have one symptom. So if your hair is falling out, it could be from a lot of different reasons. And low iodine as a cause of your hair falling out is really on the bottom of the list. So the most common reason that people Hashimoto's have their hair fall out is Actually, not even the thyroid hormones. The most common reason people with Hashimoto's have their hair out is because they have really bad circulation. So one of the ways you can check to see if you have really bad circulation is just like touch the tip of your nose, see if it's cold. Touch your finger. If you feel your fingertips and toes are always cold and the tip of your nose is cold, that means you're probably not getting healthy blood flow to your tissues, including your scalp. So the best way you can improve that is by increasing your heart rate. If you get your heart rate up, you can improve your circulation. Natural things that... Improved circulation like um, ginkgo biloba or vinpocetine can be helpful in improving circulation and blood flow, but it's probably not an iodine-related issue if your hair is falling out. There's also the possibility that your autoimmunity is not really managed, so you have inflammation blocking your thyroid receptor sites from expressing properly, even though you have thyroid hormones in your system. So that would be really more of an autoimmune management in general, and not necessarily related to low iodine. Now, if your serum iodine levels have been low, you could just increase your dietary consumption of iodine foods. But remember, iodine supplements consistently show to be a trigger for Hashimoto's people. And, you know, if you read forums and you go to, to different Hashimoto's uh, groups, you'll have. Countless people tell you when they stopped iodine, their symptoms went away, or when they tried taking iodine, that they totally collapsed and fell apart. So there's some very clear reactions, and some people are much more vulnerable to iodine than other people. And if you look at studies done on iodine, what they clearly find is over time, if people are taking greater iodine in populations, and especially those that have TPO antibodies, their autoimmune disease gets much worse. And there's greater tissue destruction. So iodine just tends to stimulate that autoimmune response. So if you're going to want to raise your iodine, I definitely wouldn't do it with supplements. I just would consider some foods. But even more importantly, if you're only concerned is hair falling out, I think you're making the assumption that just since your blood iodine levels are slightly lower there or low, that you think that's why your hair might be falling out. But check out check out circulation force first and inflammatory pathways first. Okay, next question. Do people get off thyroid meds? How would I know if it's the right for me? What about wanting to reduce my dosage? So that's where you work with your doctor. You measure your TSH levels. If your TSH levels, or, are, are um, high, then you need to take thyroid medication. If you're on thyroid medication and your TSH levels are normal, you check again over a period of time. Let's say in a year, and six months, and three months. If your TSH levels go back up, that means you need to take in higher dose because you've had more thyroid gland destruction and you need to compensate for that now what about reducing your dosage well there are some things that happen there are times when people calm down their autoimmune responses uh, and the thyroid hormone dose they're taking is too much for them there's research studies on people that have celiac disease and and Hashimoto's and hypothyroidism and as soon as they stop eating gluten um their thyroid hormone dose gets cut sometimes in half the way you know that your thyroid meds are too much for you is they're causing you hyperthyroid symptoms so let's say you you were a person that was really reactive to gluten you get off gluten and all of a sudden you get anxiety and nervousness and inward trembling uh it could be because now you're since you've been off gluten and you were, let's say, extremely sensitive to that, your your inflammation came down. So now your receptor sites are able to respond to thyroid hormones more efficiently. And, but the dose you're taking is way too much for them, for you. So now you're getting like really hyper. So your clue to that, you probably need to bank off your medicine is if you get hyper symptoms. And your clue that you need to increase your dose is uh, to um, see if your TSH has gone up or if your TSH is elevated okay the second part of the question if i follow your advice listening to my body know what makes me feel solid and what triggers symptoms what indicators would you show that i need to reduce my dosage so i think i think we answered this just look at the tsh uh and symptoms of hyper okay next question one question a long time ago i was a college and professional basketball player do you have info on formal former female athletes and autoimmunity or Hashimoto's No. Several of my teammates over the years have developed Hashimoto's, and I saw my mom and a former female coach with thyroid issues eventually die with brain decline. Is a thyroid ultrasound a helpful test to get? Okay. So just so you know, one out of 12 women have currently, the statistics are one out of 12 women will have an autoimmune disease in their lifetime. And the most common autoimmune disease is Hashimoto's. So you may just feel like it's happening to athletes, but it's just happening to females uh, all throughout the world. And uh, it's not specific to athletes. So that's the first part. And secondly, your question is, is thyroid ultrasound helpful? So a thyroid ultrasound is helpful if you're trying to look for a mass or a growth, but it's not going to be that useful to you as a screen for Hashimoto's. If you, if you're doing a Blood test for TPO thyroglobin antibodies, that would be the best way to check for Hashimoto's. Okay, next question. If one consistently tests negative for TPO and thyroglobin antibody, can one confidently rule out Hashimoto's? Yeah, I mean, if you consistently test with negative antibodies, you probably don't have Hashimoto's. Um, What happens to some people is they hear all the sensitive Hashimoto's and things like brain fog and fatigue and depression and impaired metabolism they have all those symptoms and they think that it's actually Hashimoto's but it's actually not. Now I can tell you the number one mimicker of Hashimoto's is actually insulin resistance. So insulin resistance is a you know, pre-diabetic stage where people start to have issues getting glucose into their cells. So the symptoms of insulin resistance the, in females, um that then leads to something called polycystic ovarian syndrome causes testosterone levels to go up so in, in some females when insulin levels are high because they're eating too much carbs and too much sugar and not getting enough physical activity insulin drives and activates uh, seventeen twenty 20 lice enzymes and thecal cells of their ovaries to produce more testosterone it's a mechanism and they get high testosterone and high insulin. And when the testosterone levels go up in a female, what actually happens is they get hair loss and really significant hair loss. And as their testosterone levels go up in females, they also start to get thyroid. I mean, testosterone receptor resistance. So they lose their libido. They get some uh, rage, some anger. They get some mood changes hair is falling out their insulin's high they start to gain weight and then the symptoms of mood disorders depression weight gain hair falling out all sound like they're Hashimoto's but they're not so just realize that the 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 greatest mimicker of Hashimoto's is actually polycystic ovarian syndrome which is a pattern where there's too much insulin leading to high testosterone and you can do a simple blood test to see if you're fasting glucose is elevated, and you can do even more sensitive tests like um, measuring your glucose and insulin after a glucose load, like a glucose tolerance load test, to see if that's an issue for you. But if you have consistently low negative on thyroglobin, but you have all the symptoms of Hashimoto's, make sure you don't have PCOS. PCOS being polycystic ovarian syndrome, high insulin, high testosterone. Okay, next question. How do we find... A Hashimoto's or autoimmune professional to work with? I've had such superficial visits with my endos in primary care. Does a person need to be an MD? Okay, so it really depends on what you're looking for for a healthcare professional. Now, if you you really need management with uh, your replacement and medication, I mean, you have to work with an MD or DO. They're the only one that have a license to do that. If you're looking for people to work with that are really more focused on your diet, nutrition, and lifestyle, then... Other healthcare professionals like DCs and NDs and uh, dietitians, nutritionists, they can they can really help you with that, and and some of them are really good at that because that's the only thing they're focused on. Um, they're not worried. They're not focused on the medication part of it. So if you go to um, the Karazian Institute, K H A R R azin institute this is a group this is a institute where i train healthcare professionals and we have a, on the bottom of the f- homepage we have a find a practitioner and these are people that have gone through all the different courses that i teach that i think have a pretty good idea to to that at least been exposed to education that can be very helpful for the models that that i talk about now I don't know these people on this list specifically or know exactly what they do. All I know is they've had some kind of training, so I can't guarantee they're going to be good. But the bottom line is you're not alone. You know, here's the thing. First of all, working with and managing autoimmunity is no easy task. So you have to find people that have decided to dedicate themselves to a a very complex area of healthcare, And also, um, it's not fun because autoimmune patients are always suffering and they're always in, you know, struggling. And it's really hard as a practitioner to constantly work with autoimmune patients because it, it becomes draining. It becomes exhausting. Like I know there's a limit of how many new patients I can take because of the emotional response, the f- the physical depletion it takes to, to just see people suffering all the time that are in bad places. And autoimmune is very complex and you have to know a lot of different things in order to help people go into remission. So it's always always going to be hard to find someone that's very good. And the other thing is when they're really good, they have waiting lists. So it may take a while before you get in. And if they're really good, they probably got to the point where they're going, I can't deal with insurance companies anymore because I can't get paid for my time. And I have overhead and staff and they're probably cash. So those are the unfortunate things. So more than likely, if you're wanting to find a really good skilled autoimmune professional, it's gonna take you some time. Once you find them, there's gonna be a waiting list. And then once you go through that, there's probably gonna it's probably gonna be cash because they can't get compensated for their time and energy when they're working with with, with a person suffering from autoimmunity. I'll give you an example. If an insurance company is only gonna pay for a 20-minute medical history, a person with autoimmunity may need to have a two-hour, three-hour medical history. So if they're only getting compensated for a 20-minute history and doing three-hour histories throughout the day, they literally cannot pay their overhead. So this is the frustrating thing of how the healthcare system is right now. So that's the that's the reality of how the situation is. Okay, next question. Is bentonite clay safe for someone with mercury fillings if they suspect they have leaky brain? Bentonite clay is not going to do anything for mercury, by the way. It's not going to bind to mercury and clear it out, so... Be aware of that. If they have leaky brain, bentonite clay is not going to get into the leaky brain being blood brain barrier permeability. Uh, bentonite clay is not going to cross the blood brain barrier to get in The molecular weight's way too large to cross even a leaky blood brain barrier. Okay, next part of the question. Or should one do an immune reactivity test for chemicals first to make sure it's safe to use bentonite? I'm aiming to use bentonite to remove mycotoxins. So I'm antifungals right now. Okay. So, uh, you know, there's different binders. Uh, Bentonite can be a binder if you're dealing with mold mycotoxins. Uh, fiber can be, can be a very good binder as well. So mycotoxins are not the same. The only time we're really concerned about checking for chemical immune reactivity that the person has antibodies to chemicals is if they have, if they have an autoimmune disease and they're wanting to use something like a chelating agent. So a chelating agent like DMPS, uh, DMSA, EDTA can actually bind to things like mercury and clear them out. And in those scenarios, we're, we're a little worried about them because studies have shown that these chelating agents that bind to heavy metals like mercury, they can also redistribute chemicals throughout the body. And, you know, as a, Act of caution before a person with autoimmunity, especially neurological autoimmunity or something like MS, we don't want chemicals to redistribute back into their neurological tissue into the brain. Is make sure they don't have blood brain permeability. So there's laboratory markers like S100B or blood brain barrier protein antibodies that can be done to make sure that their blood brain barrier is intact. And then then you you might consider it, but if it's permeable then you would be very careful with trying to use a chelating agent because it can, it can be an issue. But mycotoxins and, and binders like bentonite clay are, are, no, are not of any serious concern because they're not chelating agents and redistributing problems. So you wouldn't need to run things like chemical antibodies or blood-brain barrier to, to see what's going on with those. Okay, next question. I had my ovaries and uterus removed and started taking estrogen, Later, I was diagnosed with hypothyroidism and psoriasis. The anti-TPO test came back negative, but my synthroid dosage is increased every five years. I assume that the estrogen plus being overweight interfered caused by low thyroid function, but is it possible I have Hashimoto's? Okay. Well, let's first talk about each of these one by one. So if you had your ovaries and uterus removed and you started taking estrogen, then uh, that's going to help. That's going to, even though you had your ovaries removed, being on estrogen is going to counteract some of the negative things that could be take place without having ovaries. Now, if you were diagnosed with hypothyroidism and psoriasis, it's pretty much 90% higher probability based on current statistics. You actually have Hashimoto's. So you had a negative anti-TPO test. So... It doesn't mean that you don't have Hashimoto's. So remember, in order to test for Hashimoto's, you check TPO and thyroglobulin. Sometimes people only show up with thyroglobulin, and sometimes antibodies fluctuate, and sometimes there's a lab error. But the fact you have psoriasis, which is also an autoimmune disease, and hypothyroidism, which is 98% probability that it's Hashimoto's, you probably have Hashimoto's. Even further, you put in, you, you state that... Your centroid dose is increasing every five years. So why would your why would you need more and more thyroid hormones every every five you know every five years? Well, the basic answer is because something's destroying your gland. So you probably have Hashimoto's, even though you had that one antibody test that came back negative. You may want to run it again, and you may want to run thyroglobulin. And even if both of those are negative, it's possible you're in that subtype of people that need a biopsy. to look at the thyroid tissue itself to find the Hashi autoimmune response because the autoimmune reactivity you have may be target proteins besides TPO and thyroglobulin. Anyways, hope that answers your question. Okay, next question. Is there something more I can do to help reduce my reaction when exposed to chemicals? I use a HIPAA air purifier and have gotten rid of most of the chemicals in my environment. I eat a very good diet and exercise, but I'm still very sensitive. Does my liver need s- support? So here's the thing. So air filters are great because you can get rid of an, you know, airborne pollutants that can not be healthy for uh, for you. Um, but if you're reacting to chemicals, that goes back to you probably have issues with your immune tolerance. So you may have lost your immune, co- immune tolerance aspect. So when you say like, do you need liver support? Maybe, maybe not. So, chemical tolerance is your inability to not react to chemicals so that could be caused by overactive cooper cells overactive dendritic cells dysfunctional t-rex cells even uh, gut barrier permeability Um, they can all be various factors that can make you extremely sensitive to chemicals you could have impaired biotransformation pathways Um, and i don't have a direct answer for you but i did make a program on immune tolerance called 3d immune tolerance program. And it teaches you how to support your tolerance. And the 3d stands for uh, downregulate, distinguish and diversify. These are mechanisms you need to incorporate to improve your immune tolerance. So you may want to look at the articles we wrote on Dr. K news about this, or um, check out the program itself at drknews.com. Okay, you say no BPA or derivatives of that. Is there a water filtering system you would recommend? So uh, BPA is a known trigger for uh, autoimmune disease and Hashimoto's. This has been published in multiple uh, journals and different researchers all throughout the world at this time. And uh, BPA-free products really are using things like bps which is even more reactive than bpa so the products that you're reading about that say bpa free are just using bps and bps is even worse than bpa so uh you have to be aware of that now not you can't completely avoid all the exposure to plastics in bpa you just need to know that bpa free stuff isn't really any better it's just makes you feel like it's better because it says bpa free anything that's plastic has bisphenols in there and those bisphenols can be immune activating so you're going to always get some exposure to them so you just do the best you can Um, you're not going to be able to most water filtering systems are going to be able to remove uh, bpa compounds but there isn't any specific filtering system that has been clearly shown to do that. I'm just saying that based on its molecular weight. It should be easy to filter out. Okay, next question. Some people claim low vitamin D means there is an infection causing low vitamin D. Any truth to this? Yeah, so this is this is the exact problem with internet nutrition. <laughs> just this theory is thrown around left and right. You know, like, oh, low vitamin D, you, you, you've got... Uh, <laughs> You've got mold, you know, or you've got an infection. That's not how these things work. So low vitamin D doesn't mean you have an infection. Low vitamin D means you have low vitamin D. Lots of things can cause cause low vitamin D. I think what they're misinterpreting is research on what's called uh, the ratios between 125 and 25 hydroxy vitamin D. So some people, when they have uh, an actual infection, their vitamin D levels never go up, but their one twenty-five, their twenty-five hydroxy levels don't go up. But their one twenty-five hydroxy levels—these are different types of vitamin D—and they can go up. So that's really the main indication. But if you have low vitamin D, you can't just jump into infection. Um, you could have malabsorption. You could have a gallbladder issue, not absorbing vitamin D. You could not be taking enough vitamin D. You could be depleting vitamin D more than than you're utilizing it. Um, so those are you know common things to think about as well. Okay, those are all the main questions that were submitted. I hope uh, those answers uh, help you, and thank you for submitting them, and have a great day.
0: You can find all of this information and more at drknews.com slash podcast. There you'll find the show notes, readings, and links related to this episode. You can also find Dr. Karazian's blog at drknews.com. The best thing to do is sign up for his weekly newsletter, where he will update you on the latest research and clinical strategies related to chronic and autoimmune health conditions. On social, you can find him on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest with the username Datis Karazian. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice. And note, no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and in the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not delay or disregard obtaining medical advice for any medical conditions they have, and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. To learn more about Dr. Karazian's disclosures and the companies he advises, please visit drknews.com forward slash about.